probably verses one through seven probably sound very familiar to last week's chapter. Uh, they are. Uh, I would say they go right in line, except for I think maybe the writer uh, made that transition right before verse one for this reason. Um, and last week we had the gospel presented through through David's poem, which was, I think, spot on. Um, but he says this. He says it's not just your, your family in, in that little beginning right there. And I, and I think that's because he's getting ready to transition from where he, he thought about all that God did through his family and through him. And now he says, but look at the men that God brought beside me. You know, sometimes you're stuck with some family members that you may or may not like. You know, I'll let you pick which ones you like and which ones you don't. But when you find you some good friends, like David calls these guys his mighty men. And we've said it from the beginning all the way to the end. David never does nothing special without his mighty men. And his mighty men never accomplish nothing special without him. Every time something special is going on, these guys have clicked together and made it happen. So when David says in verse 8, which we're going to kick off, these are the names of the mighty men. David wants you to understand, like, I was nothing in my leadership without these guys. And these guys were nothing without me. Basically, he's saying a leader's nothing without the right followers. Now, if you think about that in worldly sense, is that not true in a biblical sense with Almighty God? Now, he is the great leader, but he wants what? Great followers. He wants us to become mighty men like, like listed here. And I, and I got to pause it to remind you guys, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 22, you got to keep in mind, this is not how these guys started. You know, we read about them now 40 years later, and we're all like, oh, I can't believe they were able to do that. That's like amazing, like Rambo and Clean Eastwood and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. They would be super jealous of all that these guys are accomplishing. But let, it, let me remind you of how they started. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 22 and look at verse 2. In addition, every man who was desperate, every man who was in debt, Every man who is discontented, they rallied around him as David in a sense. You get that from verse one. And he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. And we know a couple chapters later, it's going to jump up to 600. But out of those 400 original guys who were desperate, ill, in debt, discontented, nobodies, 37 of them. A couple of them have died in this list when, when Danny Redden kept saying 30, so keep that in mind. 37 of them made a list to be called the mightiest men that people feared when battle came in. So much fear. We'll talk about that in just a minute on, on what the enemy thought. But this, this is awesome, man. When David was at his lowest, these guys remained faithful. These are true people, not in what they are able to end up becoming able to do, but because they started in a mission that looked horrible. And when you start at the lowliest of low and you're still able to stay faithful throughout the entire estate, you've proven something. You've proven something. And that's where these guys are. And not, not just for them. We said at the beginning, the day for ministry, the day for the triumph of the church is today. It's not just stuff that we read about from the past. The, the victory of the church is in every single one of your daily lives. You determine the victory of the church in your testimony, in the choices you make, your personal victories, your life. And I think as we look at this list, we should aspire to be warriors of God that get listed it for our time. Those that are willing to go outside the camp, those that are willing to attempt things for Christ so great that the numbers don't matter. To take on enemies so great that the numbers don't matter. And a couple of things before we even jump into this that we've got to grab a hold of before we jump in. I'm only going to look at 8 through 12 today. We're not going to make all them, all them verses. But 8 through 12, here's what we got to understand before we kick this thing off. 
First, the enemy loves to attack in the midst of chaos. What have we been talking about the entire end of 2 Samuel? What's been going on in this great town that David is in control of? Chaos. His own family seeking to destroy. Battles from within. And church, I'm going to tell you right now, the enemy loves to see chaos in society because he sees it as an invitation to take advantage of a disintegrating culture. So as long as there's chaos in society outside, the enemy sees it as an invitation to jump on board to destroy what's left of a culture that he hasn't overcome yet. The second thing we see, so understand this, all the fighting amongst him has caused chaos, which has allowed uh, room for more battle to come in. The second thing is this, his forefathers left unfinished business that he had to handle. When you ask the question, we think, why is David still fighting Philistines? Why is he still fighting Amorites, Canaanites, and all the other ites that are listed in Scripture? The answer, because his forefathers failed to fight when they had a chance. If we open Scripture and go back and look all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, we get the reason God wanted to completely annihilate and destroy these people. He didn't want to take a chance at his people being manipulated the other way. And then we get to the book of Judges. You remember how it may have started the series so long ago where some people did what they wanted to do. But here's the problem. Here's what's repeated all throughout Judges chapter one. Manasseh did not drive out the people. Then it goes on and it says he forced them into labor. This guy forced them into labor, but this guy didn't drive them out, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Neither did the Canaanites because they continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites, nor did Asher drive out those that he was supposed to. Neither did Nephetel drive out those that he was supposed to drive out. And it keeps on going about all these guys who didn't drive out anybody because they thought it'd be a good idea to save them for a workforce. Well, God didn't call them to save them for a workforce. God called them to get rid of them. And when we choose to think that we know better than God, we open the door for trouble. And that's what they did. They said, you know what? I got a good idea. They look like they got strong backs. They look like they got good arms. They look like they can do the job that I don't really want to do. So to make it easy and more convenient for myself, I'll just choose to disregard the word of the Lord and do it my way. And we see the trouble that gets them into. The Jews of Joshua's day, they failed to fight. You come to the time of judges, you get cycles of what? Idolatry. Cycles of them being manipulated by the pagans because they failed to drive out and they failed to do what God told them to do. So then we get to David, a man after God's own heart. And David says, you know what? Enough is enough. It's time that we start fighting. And he fights and he fights and he fights and he fights so much that he leaves this legacy to Solomon, which we'll get to here in the next few weeks. That's going to inherit a kingdom that had peace on every side of it. But here at this chapter, we're reminded as he wraps up the stuff at the end of his life, we're reminded that that peace came with a price. And that price was war and bloodshed. And you and I need to understand that if we're driving for peace and we desire peace, sometimes peace comes with a price. If we're following the word of God. Now, my big question I had to write down in my personal notes for this week was, was this at the very beginning before I even got started? What battles am I leaving behind for my kids to fight because I didn't? Ask yourself that. Write that down in your notes. Don't shout it out loud because people think less of you, right? But I'm telling you, write it down and make sure God, God gives you an answer. What battles have you refused to fight and deal with? Have you kept because it's more convenient and easy? Have you decided that you knew better than God about? That you didn't do what you were supposed to do with? That now your children are fighting. Some of you are to an age where you maybe even see it, your children's children fight out enemies that you were supposed to be fighting. We talk about problems in families and how long they last and, and all this stuff about genetics and all. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I desire for it to stop with my generation so it doesn't get passed to the next generation. 
and therefore so should the rest of us. We get a guy like David who's charismatic, who people love to be around, and they want to fight with him. And then scripture takes time to list all these hard names that Danny had to say. What, 39 verses of them. 39 verses of ridiculous names. But all for a worthy cause, right? You got to say, what in the world was God trying to show us? One, I think God was just trying to show us some encouragement. That if some people will get up and fight, the battles can get won. The second thing is some lessons that we need to maybe learn from their examples. One thing that started with this whole thing, remember, this is this is the mighty men of David, right? So it had to start with David. What I love is that valiant warriors don't fight just for the sake of killing. And they don't fight just for the sake of reward. Now, keep that in mind, because some of you are just fighting a battle thinking you just in it for the reward. That's not it. You go all the way back to David and Goliath. And for 40 days, this big old giant has been standing up there calling out anybody to fight. For 40 days, Saul, who was too scared, even though he was the biggest of his people, to go out there and fight him. For 40 days, Saul's been saying, whoever will go out there and fight him, I'll make it tax free for the rest of your life. Right. You won't have to buy none of them Chevrolets because you won't be paying taxes, you know, on, on, on the government. Right. So that, that's a stab at you guys. You know that. Right. So so he's going on and he's telling him, but no one, no one gets up to fight this guy. Saul makes it better. He says, I tell you what, whoever gets up and fights you, you get to marry into the royal family. You'll now become a bloodline that is great. Still, nobody gets up to fight him. David bringing his brothers a happy meal one day. Comes around the corner and sees this big old ugly joker. Talking trash. Blasphemy in God. And David says, something's got to be done. What are you guys doing? And everybody's sitting around saying, well, here's what Saul said. And here's what's going on. And here's what he's been doing. But ain't none of us going to get up there and take care of him. And David says this. You go all the way back to scripture. He says, he looks at Goliath when he finally does tell Saul what he's about to do. He says, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. The God of the armies of Israel, who you have defiled. This day, Yahweh will hand you over to me and I will strike you down. I will cut off your head. You imagine looking at a giant saying all that. I'm going to knock you out with a rock. Then I'm going to pick up your sword, cut off your head, and I'm going to walk around holding it for a couple days. You know what I'm saying? Y'all might remember that. huh? Today, I'll give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that Yahweh is the God in Israel. You know why David was able to fight? It wasn't because he wanted to kill and it wasn't because he wanted a reward. David could fight because there was a cause. And church, I'm going to tell you right now, more of us sitting in these seats right here and at homes right now on computers. And everyone, we need to determine what's our cause. What's our cause that we think is worth drawing a line in the sand and fighting over? For David, it was that he wanted to uphold the name of Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. I think that's a pretty darn good cause that we might start off representing, right? Ask yourself, maybe jot this one down as an answer to why do you fight? Why do you fight or who do you fight and why do you fight them? Because as you're writing that down, here's what you might need to write down and we'll take it from the definition of success. Some of you need to define what success is for you. You do. And here's why. Because if you succeed at the wrong thing, you failed. Uh, uh, Stephen Covey, or Stephen Covey, I'm sorry, says that most people are busy climbing up the ladder of success and they're so busy that they fail to realize it's leaning against the wrong side of the wall. How true is that, right? Before you go after your dream, before you go after your enemy, before you go after that, that success that, that you deem, you better make sure you know what yours is. 
Because a lot of us are probably going in the wrong direction for too long. And in a chapter full of people, you need to understand something about this. You got to get around the right people. You got to get something some, so, so, so simple in this thing. Why else would he have listed all these names? He's trying to tell us as people of God, we got to surround ourselves with the right people. There's a little preposition in that. Whoever thought I'd ever use an English term, right? Preposition. My wife would be real proud, but she's dealing with the kids, right? There's this little preposition that has huge implications in this chapter that's repeated. And it says these guys were with David. They were with David. They were with David. We got to surround ourselves with the right people. They were with the right. They were at the right place at the right time with the right person. And some of you are thinking, well, I don't know what my dream is. I don't know what my enemy is. I don't know what my success really is. Then you better get around somebody who does. And you better make sure theirs is the right one. Right? That's what Eliezer did. And all these other writing men, they got around David who had the right vision and the right drive. God is in the business of building up your resume by building up the network of people that you're around. Surround yourself with the right people. We ought to be self-sufficient as believers. Really? We ought to. We ought to not have to depend on the world for anything. We ought to be self-sufficient as believers because we've lined ourselves up with the right thing. Look all throughout Scripture. Joshua, he climbs Mount Sinai with Moses. Elijah, he shadows Elijah, shadows Elijah. That's that's just mixed up. I shouldn't say that as an example. Ruth wouldn't leave her mother-in-law, you know, anytime. These people, they were around the right people and it paid dividends to them. Joshua took over for Moses, right? Leading people into the promised land. Uh, Elijah got Elijah's mantle and a double portion of the blessing is what scripture says, a double anointing. Ruth got a second chance by Mary and Boaz. Uh, They had a boy named Obed. He had a boy named Jesse who had a boy named David who got us where we are today, right? Why? All because of who they hung around. Church, a simple lesson in this chapter, just make sure you hanging around the right people, right? And when you do the right people, here's what they look like. Now, I want to do this whole chapter needs to each person. We may come back over the course of years to get the rest of them. But I spent so much time on Eliezer and that stupid little sword he was holding on. That by the time I had a chance to go back to the rest, I realized we wouldn't get out till lunch in five weeks from now. So we only go look at a couple of the guys. So here's the first guy, verse eight, because we could just look at one. Right. Not on a list like that. Verse eight. Here's what the church needs. The church needs some men that will start facing the odds. The church needs men that will start facing the odds. I'm sick of people whining and saying, well, the odds aren't in my favor. Who cares? Who cares? Maybe you got the wrong definition of odds is my question. Right. I mean, let's look back at this. Well, before we even look at there, look, look at verse eight. Before we even finish the story, I got to look at verse eight. Here's what I got to ask before we get to what we call the rest of the story. Right. Why did the enemy bring 800 people against one guy? And for those of you who studied scripture and you're like, hold on now, there's another chapter to list this and it only lists 300. OK, why did the enemy bring 300 against one guy? And for some of you to think just numbers sound crazy. Why did they bring so many a lot against one? Because I don't think the numbers are really the significant part of it, right? Y'all ain't got no answer? Huh? Who was scared? Darn Skippy, brother. Y'all better figure it out. I'm going to tell you right now, one of my favorite things in Scripture was when I... And, and I, I was just checking stuff out, and, and I'm a, you know, I'm a visual guy, so I'm a big picture. And I remember when Jesus was, he was getting arrested. Now, now this is this is this is a whole whole new idea of illustration, but you know, whole other side of the Bible. And Jesus getting arrested. Y'all remember what it says? And they brought a a legion to arrest him. 
Now, I read this, and that's the first time, like, stuff's finally clicking. I'm like, hey, I'm understanding what Scripture's really about. And I'm, like, getting excited and going crazy. And you're probably thinking, well, why is that? Do you know how bad Jesus had to be that they thought they needed an entire legion of soldiers to come arrest him? Let that click now, because some of that ain't clicking for you guys. You got to be a bad man for them to bring. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honored. You know what I'm saying? Like you come to arrest me and you bring what 600 to a thousand, depending on which legion you in. I'm going to smile. <laughs> Success right there. Right. I, I'm picturing like public enemies because I watched that this week and, and a picture of John Dillinger when he finally gets arrested by, by all the FBI and the G-Man, the original dudes. And of course, Melvin Purvis was the guy who led that up. In case y'all didn't know, uh, that one's free for you. You just think I'm famous. You know, so, so he's doing all this. And John Dillinger is just smiling with the dudes excited as he looks around. And I'm like, that, that's how Jesus would have been. Now, that is very corrupt to compare Jesus to John Dillinger. See, y'all don't do that. Only I can do that, right? But I'm thinking, like, how awesome, how awesome you got to feel if, if you're this guy at this very beginning. Who we at first? I done got to mix up Joseph. How awesome do you have to be? I'm going to call him Josh for the rest of this section, okay? How awesome you got to be to be Josh and 800, 300, or whatever comes around the corner to fight you. I'm a smile. My reputation precedes me, I see. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's a bad dude. So my question is, what reputation do you have? Do you have a reputation that would be worthy of the enemy sending more because they're, as Head said, afraid of you? See, I don't think we catch that part. We read it and we're like, oh, man, that guy had to be so scared. No, they scared of him. Anytime you got to bring that many people against one man, you scared of him. Right? Scared of getting your butt kicked. I wonder what the enemy knew about Josh that made him fe- uh, fearful of a, of a fair fight. Fearful of a fair fight. Yeah, that's good tongue twister, right? What they know about him? Well, we don't know a lot about this guy, but what had he done in the past that required so much merit that the enemy in the present had to bring that many against him? He had a past that was worthy of remembering. That's what it was, right? Do you? Do you? You want to be a mighty man of God? Make sure you make it history for yourself. Make sure you stacking the odds in your favor. I believe his reputation proceeded. I believe he had so many past victories that the enemy as head said was scared of him. And we know he wasn't scared of them, right? You ever felt outnumbered? You ever had that feeling? Now, there's no denying the fact that if you one man, I don't care if it's 100, 300, or 800, or even 30. You get, when, they, when that many people and that many things surrounds you, there, there's just a different kind of feeling that comes on you. Now, maybe you've been outnumbered by by your enemy. Maybe you've been outnumbered by people speaking evil against you. Maybe you've been outnumbered by people seeking to destroy you. Maybe you've been outnumbered by by actual men around you, right? When you're outnumbered and that feeling hits you, you got to decide, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You can run. You can get in a little fetal position and get beat up by all of them. Or you can fight. That's the only three options you got. And if you run, you better hope you run faster than all of them. Right? You get in the fetal position, you're done, you've already given up. This guy gets surrounded, he has that feeling. He has to have that feeling because he's a man. You've had that feeling. And what does he do? He pulls out his, his spear, he straightens his back, and he goes to work one by one. One by one, the enemy fell at his feet. One by one, they fell like flies. One by one, until there was none, Josh, with God on his side, eliminated him. Y'all know how you eat elephant, right? One bite at a time. 
When you feel like you're surrounded, you got to just pick them out one at a time. Now, here's what Joshua really knew that you guys need to grab a hold of, too. The odds were in his favor. Because one man or one woman plus God is all we need. Right? Then that's where he was at. That's where he's at. And if you're going to fight, you don't get the chance to look at the odds. Right? We need some people in the church that are going to stop looking at the odds. Second thing we need where we'll spend most of our time, nine and ten. A man who will finish the mission. Doesn't everybody love a finisher? You know what I'm saying? Like you watch videos of these long distance races or, or even sprints where somebody fell and got hurt. And like people go crazy, not over the winner. They go crazy then too. But they go crazy over the guy who like just had to fight to finish. You, you've seen them before. Like some of them, some of the guys like catch a cramp. You know, they've been training their whole life, but they happen to catch a cramp at that one moment. That guy finishes the race. And then there's one, one real awesome one where a guy's dad comes out to stand and, and helps him finish the race in the middle of the Olympics. And like everybody just goes crazy because we love a finisher. Now, interesting enough, when you get to nine and ten, check nine and ten out. When you get to nine and ten, you need to understand this. They fighting in the same place. Giant just, uh, uh, David just fought Goliath. This same place. This is the same little area. This place turned out to be a headache for Israel. While Saul was there, David's getting the bus kicked. Now that David's there, they're still fighting right there. Y'all got any places that become a headache for you? Now raise your hand in your head. Are you dumb enough to keep going back to them places? We got some places that are just headaches for us. It's just a place you don't need to go. It's a person you don't need to be with. It's an area you don't need to be around. And what do you do? You continue to be, as I said it, yes, dumb enough to keep on going back to the same old area with the same old people and you wonder why you're fighting the same old enemy. Right? There's something to be learned here, guys. The enemy loves to take us back to old battlegrounds, a place where he's held us up in the past. But if you like O.L. and these are here, right, you got the sufficiency of your weapon. Right? He's, he's got a weapon. He's only got one weapon, though. Notice what the scripture says. It was him and his trusty sword. But he had confidence in this sword. I believe there's no doubt he had fought many battles before and this sword was reliable to him. I believe he cared for it. I believe he oiled it. I believe he sharpened it. I believe he would have been one of the guys on Forged with Fire if they had the History Network in this time period right here. I'm telling you, like this is him. He knew it and he knew his sword would not fail him. Now, you, you ask people who have been through the military or, or military instructors, and, and when they tell you about that class where, like, you have to take your weapon apart and, and put it back together, and some of these guys get where they can even do it blindfolded, and they're the only ones that do that with their weapon. You know what the main lesson is? Same reason a, a guy who's going to jump out of a plane normally packs his own parachute. Confidence. Confidence. If you put your gun together... You've got confidence in that gun. I don't have to worry about it if Joe Blow didn't do it the right way. Right? Now, I don't know how to pack a parachute, so if I ever one of those guys jumping out of a plane, I'm going to depend on somebody else's. But these guys knew what they were. He was familiar with his sword. Before he ever got to this battlefield, I bet he done killed a thousand invisible soldiers. Right? You, you, you ever seen? I mean, think about it. We, we go outside and we shoot trees and we shoot cans and we shoot targets and, and, and wood and all this stuff. These guys didn't have guns. They had swords. How often do you think they was outside slinging that sword around, right? I, I bet his wife looked out the window and, and saw him out in the yard eight hours a day swinging the sword around fighting invisible people. He looked like a little kid who had just got one of them little plastic ninja swords 
and is beating up the entire world with it. Except for he was doing it with a real sword and he had real enemies he was picturing in his head while he was doing it. This guy was trained. He was familiar with the sword. He knew the feel of it. He knew the weight of it. He knew exactly what it would cut through. He knew how much force to give. He knew how to use it offensively and defensively. He knew how to use it so much. Scripture says it became an extension of his own arm. Huh? Now, now ask yourself, what does Scripture say our sword is? Do you know it well enough to fight with it? Do you know it? Does it come natural to fight with it that way? You know, look back at Jesus again. When Jesus gets tempted by the enemy who knows the word, by the way, also, it just comes natural to use the word against him every time. Right? All three times, it just flows. It's like it's like a good sentence coming out. You can't tell the difference in what he's saying and what the word done said. That's where we ought to be. Ephesians 6, 17. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Take it up. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces, it even divides the soul and spirit of the joints and the moral, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God to cut stuff a sword ain't even thought about cutting. Right? The question is, though, is do we know our weapon? I don't think he would have had the confidence to stand up and fight that many people with David. More or less, some of them may have even been very tall, if not all the way to the giant status of people. I don't think he'd had the confidence to fight then if he wasn't that familiar with his weapon. Right? Everybody else done left. It's just him and David hanging out. They look at each other. Let's do this. Right? Do we have unflinching confidence in the word of God? Do we know, like Jesus said, Luke 16, 17, that it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one pinstroke of the law to fail? Wow. Are you telling me everything can just disappear, kaput, gone, easier than it would be for one pinstroke of the law to fail. What's Jesus saying? Jesus saying you can trust God at his word. That's what he's saying. You can trust God and God's word. It is absolutely reliable. But listen to me now. I'm not talking logical. I'm not talking reasonable. I'm talking about you got to get the experience of truth for yourself. Preacher after preacher can assure you that God's word is unfailing. I can tell you God's word is unfailing from now until tomorrow morning. And you may memorize that sentence. God's word is unfailing. But it's all just words until you begin to live it out. You know what keeps you safe on the road? It's not reading the signs. It's obeying the signs. Right? Think about that. You drive down the road all you want to and read all the street signs you want to read. Reading them ain't going to do nothing for you if you don't obey them. Right? It's obeying them that does something for you. Are we familiar with our weapons? So much so that we know how to obey it with everything that it comes about, with every situation. Realize there's an answer for every situation will come about in Scripture. Hebrew, Hebrews or yeah, chapter 5, verse 14, it talks about us being mature in the faith. Solid food is for the mature, by who constant, this word constant, constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. But how many people get in a situation and be like, I don't know what's the right way. Well, because you hadn't had constant use in the word of God. That's why you got to make sure you're surrounded with the right people, I guess. But hopefully you become the right people for other people to surround themselves with. His sword was sufficient for the battle and he had the confidence to do it. Second thing we see with this guy, the stubbornness of his grip. I, I love that, that phrase, man. His hand froze to the sword. 
You're thinking, man, was he fighting in the snowy pit? And, and, and no, no, just the word froze is a little different for us, right? You ever grip something so tight for so long, like your hand begins to cramp and stay in that position? Anybody ever been there? You got, yeah, you actually did for labor. I'm not talking about you guys who, who don't know what physical labor is. I'm talking about the men who physical labor right now, okay? All right. You've done gripped it so tight for so long that it's like you got a cramp and your hand won't open. That, that's what it's talking about. He's gripped this thing for so long, despite what seemed like a hopeless situation, right? One man with God is the majority yet again. I love what Deuteronomy said. Deuteronomy 28 verse 7. It tells us that, yeah, your enemy's going to come against you as one. But it says when they come as one, God's going to mix them up and send them back seven different ways. Because as one, your enemy's awesome. As one, we are awesome. But when we get divided is when problems come. So, so when scripture says your enemy's coming against you as one, and you know, those 800 or 300 or one, they're, they're, they're looking like one coming at you. But when God gets involved, he'll send chaos amongst them to divide them out and send them back seven different ways. So they can't stand against you anymore. Despite it, Eleanor takes his, his stand. He dedicates himself to spiritual warfare. Have we taken a stand and dedicated ourselves to spiritual warfare? I don't care about the human resources. All that stuff can be gone. I don't care about how big or how many the enemy is. This guy fights so long, he gets so exhausted, right, that his hand is, is froze to the sword. Now, now, let's look at the Hebrew word for this. This guy got two meanings. I think both are spot on. I think both are, are perfect for what's happening and perfect for lessons for us. Number one, Hebrew word can mean pursuing or clinging to. So that word froze is in most of your translations. Stuck to, froze, grabbed, whatever. Pursuing or clinging to, grasping. This means that he went after the sword and clung to it for life. You ever been in a situation where you needed to cling to the word of God just to get through whatever situation you were in? You you ever been in a situation where you just needed to cling to something to survive? That's where he's at. That's the the picture we're getting. He's holding on for dear life. Because the numbers just ain't matching up for him. The second thing it means in the Hebrew is, is what, where we get our, our word welding or, or soldering from. Which you're thinking, man, that's, that's kind of a gruesome picture. But how cool is it to think that his hand was welded to the sword? He had a special welding rod, I guess, flesh to the metal, right? So, so he's got that going. Welded. It becomes one instrument. One, now go back to what I said about Jesus earlier, where, where, where when, when Satan tempts him, he's so fluent in the scripture that it just flows. I think we ought to become like God's people where we get so fluent with the word of God inside of us that people can't tell where what we're saying stops and where the word of God starts. You know what I'm saying? If we would get that kind of speech and that kind of power coming out of us, man, the difference that it can make, guys. But that only happens if the word of God is living inside of you. That only happens if you've claimed scripture and you understand I'm being transformed by renewing of my mind. That only happens when I swallow and get rid of all the stuff I used to like and start doing everything God's way. Right? If not, then it's just your word coming out. And then it says this in that verse. And Yahweh brought a great, brought a great victory that day. Then we get the answer to what's the power behind the sword. It wasn't just a sword. It wasn't just how awesome it was. It was God. It was God the entire time. When numbers are stacked against you, it is God. Sure, he trained himself. Sure, he learned to, to wield it expertly. Sure, he clung to it in the battle. But it's God's power that gave him the ability to defeat the Philistines. Second Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes to church. And he says, for the weapons of all warfare are not carnal, but mighty 
through the God that is pulling down all the strongholds. That's, that's what he got. And then we get this third guy, verse 11. So we need some guys that are going to finish. We need some guys that are not going to worry about the odds. And we need some guys who are going to focus on the right enemy. Look at 11 and 12. 11 and 12, we, we get this last guy. And, it's, and you're reading about him, and it's almost like a funny story when you picture this thing. Now, you need to understand, you get, you've got to picture this one for it to work. After him was Shammah, the son of some guy I'm not going to try to say because my son told me I can't say it right. The Philistines assembled a formation where they were in a field full of beans. Y'all know a lentil is a bean, right? He's just in a bean field. Now he's hanging out in the bean field, and the enemy's coming against him. Then it says this, the troops fled from the Philistines. So the Philistines start coming, you're in the middle of your bean field, and all your buddies leave. They said the beans ain't worth fighting for. That, that, you got a picture. That's what they're saying, right? But, verse 12, but Shema took his stand in the middle of the bean field. He defended it, and he struck down the Philistines, so the Lord brought about a great victory yet again. First thing we see is this guy knew who his enemies were. Second thing we see, this guy knew how valuable the beans were. Now write that one down. Write that, I'm telling you, write that one down. You gotta know how valuable your beans are. You can put lentils if you want to, I don't care. That way it makes you sound more spiritual, right? Word of God said lentil, I'm gonna write down the word lentil. Well good for you, you holy little person, right? Trying to steal one of God's blessings from one of God's people ought to be a foolproof way to know you're going to get your butt kicked. Right? Now, hold on now. Don't amen it if you don't understand it and claim it. Because it's quick to say, oh, I like that. Yeah. Ain't nobody going to steal my blessing. But how many blessings you done gave the enemy? How many blessings you done surrendered to him? How many great things that God's blessed you with that you just gave away to him? See, some folks reading this and they think, Shema should have been a lot more selective in what he fought over. Right? I mean, he should have, he should have been a lot more, uh, selective in what he's willing to die for. Some people think this guy's a little harsh and a little even immature to go to battle over some beans. But what some people don't realize is they had forgotten that those were his beans. And if it was your beans, maybe you would fight the same way over them. Right? You see, who told the Philistines that they could go and take the beans that God gave this guy? Nobody. They better pray and ask God for their own beans. Right? And understand now, as we say this, beans ain't the problem. It's our stewardship that's the problem. That's what we're getting right here. God had given those beans all the way back to the land, all the way back to Leviticus. And throughout this time, God had given them all that to bless them, to feed them. To supply for them. And therefore, God expected Israel to bless the world or their, their area with those beans. He expected Israel to be sustained by those beans. God expected Israel to manage those beans. God expected Israel to defend against the locusts when they attacked these beans. God expected them to manage when the drought and disease came against these beans. And you better believe he, managed, he added an idea for them to manage the Philistines when they came to steal these beans. If Israel lost this field to the Philistines, it would have meant they were poor stewards of what God had blessed them with. Now, some of you are thinking right now, God's only giving me a bean field. And that's your biggest problem. 
You're looking at the cornfield and the, and the cotton field and you're looking at the cattle and you're looking at all the stuff everybody else got and you're whining because you only got a bean field. I believe that if you'd have done better with the bean field, God might have gave you another field. I believe you might be missing on some of the big blessings that's coming your way because you hadn't handled the little blessings. Now, this guy's got the same choice everybody else had that we've read about so far. His enemy comes. He wants to rob the bees. He's got three choices. His are a little bit more elaborate. You can let them have the beans and hopefully they go away. You ain't getting my beans, right? Number two, you can try striking a deal with the enemy and share your beans. Maybe the brother likes to eat. You don't want to share. Or number three, you can tell the enemy to get your stinking hands off my beans and go get your own beans. He takes number three. Now, God's giving you some beans. Did you know that? You know what your beans are? That, that maybe you ought to start writing that one down. What are my beans? We're going to have fun with the beans, right? What I mean, some of y'all's beans is children. Now, I understand. You look at your children like they a pinto bean. All they do is give you gas. <laughs> Perfectly understand it. I got one of them. We'll let them decide which one it is, right? Some of you thinking I got jalapeno beans. They get me hot. They get me tempered. You decide which one. I got one of them too, right? Now, some of you thinking I got coffee beans. All they do is keep me up all night. I got one of them too sometimes, right? Regardless of what kind of bean you got, though, they're your beans, right? Who gave the devil the right to mess with your beans? Now, if we're looking at beans now like our children, our whole attitude's changed now, right? We're like, hold on now, now it's something worth worth fighting for. Ah, so you go back to that definition of success. You got to decide what's worth fighting for, right? Some of you, ain't, it ain't the children, and that's fine. Some of you, your blessing, your, your beans, I'm sorry, I don't want to confuse you. Your beans is your health. Your beans is your finances. Some of your beans is your faith. You realize that's a blessing? To have faith? To take on the world? And yet some of you just give it over to the enemy because he wants to take it. Don't let the enemy take your faith. Don't let the enemy take your trust. The enemy's out to take anything unless you resist. James 4, 7 says, submit, the, submit yourselves, therefore, Begoria. resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You know what I love after the word of God becomes one with Jesus and he combats Satan up there on, the, on that last mountain when they're looking down and, and he's trying to tempt him one more time. Scripture says this, that he just left. He just left. Jesus didn't have to slap him. He didn't have to kick him. He didn't have to pull out his special godly powers on him. He just says Satan left. I think if you'd start resisting the enemy more often, he'd start leaving you more often. Now, we know that the enemy comes back. The enemy comes back when through Peter, right before crucifixion. The enemy comes back while he's on the cross. We know that. The enemy's going to come back. But wouldn't you get a little bit of relief and wouldn't it feel good if the enemy would just flee you because you keep resisting him? It's not like, well, you just don't understand. Like, temptation is so hard. They stop offering you what they offer you if you start start resisting it. I don't care if we're talking money, sex, or drugs. Right? Yeah, but but it feels good. It does until you say no enough. Then you forget what it feels like. Thank God. And you quit wanting it. Huh? Don't give the devil the ability to take your stuff. Maybe the people who've got the cornfields, the orchards, and the cattle, maybe they started with a bean field. Maybe they proved themselves faithful through the bean field, and that's why God's blessed them with so much more. Maybe as we sit back and we look and we whine about what they got and we don't, maybe we didn't see what they had to do to get what they got. Maybe we didn't know what they went through to get to what they got. You know, we read about these guys listed and we're like, man, I'd love my name listed up in that section right there. 
Have you gone through what they've gone through? Are you willing to stand where they stood? Scripture says that the thief comes like a like a, or the enemy comes like a thief in the night to steal, right? Stop letting him steal. Now, what I love is this, and I want to make sure you understand this, because some of you last week might have missed something I was saying when I was talking about the power of forgiveness and the power of God changing people. Ecclesiastes 3.8 says there's a time to wage war and there's another time to make peace. Now, when a person gets right with God, we start working on the peace. If a person ain't right with God, I like that first part of Ecclesiastes 3.8, right? It's time to wage war. We need to understand that some fields, some beans is worth fighting for. There's some things that we should start defending. There's something, you know, I, I'm sick of believers who, who think, well, you know, I need to pray about what I'm, where I'm supposed to stand. Some areas you ain't got to pray about. Now, I understand there's some areas you might have to think and you might have to consider and you might have to weigh. Some areas, there's no thinking. You defend the widow and the orphan. Ain't no thinking there. That's automatic. Okay? You, you defend the helpless. You defend those that can't defend themselves. You take care of the brothers and sisters in the church. Right? That's, that's automatic. There's, there's no debating on these things. You defend those who can't defend themselves. That means little children. Someone tell me, you wouldn't stop? Yeah, you don't even want to get me on that chapter. Right? I will go back to the old me real fast. Yeah, I won't feel bad about it at all, which is probably not a good thing to tell you from the pulpit, but it's truth. Okay? Because some battles is worth fighting. Go back to Ephesians 6 where we read about the, the, the sword being the word of God. Go back up to verse 13. It repeats this word over and over. Therefore, put on the full armor of God that one day when evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. Ain't talking about no fleeing. Ain't talking about no running. Ain't no talking about getting away. I don't know how many people jumped on the Facebook this morning, but I, I put a message out there. If you're not willing to fight, stay at home. Now, some people might have read that thing and might have said, my goodness, that sounds like a like a real rude uh, invitation to come to church from the pastor, ain't it? I don't care. Tear it down. Not on a Sunday like this. You know what I'm saying? Like, take it for what you need to take it. If that's the way you took it, we don't need you on the battlefield anyway. You better sit at home. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not looking to go to battle with somebody who's got the question and worry about their feelings getting hurt. I mean, I'm, I'm, you think about it. Do you want to go to fight with somebody who's going to ask you about the feelings before the fight? Now, Cliff, how's this going to make you feel? It's going to make my hand feel sore because I'm about to wear somebody's head out. You know what I'm saying? Like my knuckles is going to be sore. My trigger finger is going to be sore because I'm going to squeeze it so many times. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm not looking for people who are worried. And God's not looking for people who are worried about their feelings getting hurt. He's looking for people who will already be dressed for battle. Notice that. You've already dressed. So when the enemy comes, all you got to do then is stand. Right? So that you'll stand. Stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, so this is, this is like back to, back to Eleanor, right? You done stood so long that you can't stand any longer. You're thinking, God's going to say, take a break. Verse 14, stand firm. Hold on, God, you must have missed it. You just said, after you've done everything to stand, like I can't stand no more. Verse 14, stand firm. Why? Because here's then you can stand. You can stand because the the, um, the belt of truth is buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness is in place. You can stand then because now you're relying on his armor to protect you. Now, if you ain't got that on and you don't know how to use that stuff and you don't know how to wear that stuff, you're in trouble. Read the whole rest of 15 with your feet fitted into readiness. you got some good cleats on, right? And the gospel peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish flaming arrows from the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions, all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always be praying for all the saints. 
I looked over that chapter a lot of times. It covers a lot of your body. You want to know what ain't covered? Your backside. Because believers ain't called to run when they've been called to stand. You ain't got nothing defending your back. So you want to know why you're getting your butt beat when you turn around and you flee from the enemy? It's because you ain't supposed to be fleeing. And you're getting your butt kicked because you ain't got nothing defending your back. Okay? Now here, here's a big question we got to ask at this section before I end now. We're at, we're at the end. Write, that, write this one down too. Were you going to remain in the harvest field when the harvest field becomes a battlefield? Go, go back to where we were in Samuel 23 now. You, you can't miss this part. The Philistines had assembled a formation where there was a field full of beans, lentils, whatever you want to call them. Now, if the field is full of beans, what time of the year must it be? Harvest time. Now, we talk about the enemy wanting to fight you on old battlegrounds because they know he can beat you there. You know, the enemy also wants to fight you at the harvest time, too, when things are going great. You understand that? Think about how great things are going. We, we, we got the word of God being taught. We got people being baptized. We got people accepting Christ. We got people being discipled. So they're not only actually admitting they got a relationship with God, they're growing this thing and getting ready for his kingdom, right? There's some good stuff going on. We in the harvest time. You better believe the enemy wants to turn it into a battle time. Okay? The question is, are we going to remain faithful in the harvest even when there's a battle? How do you do that? We got to get more consistent. We got to get consistent as people. There are too many people that, 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 that they, they get in a fight and they get like slapped in the mouth one time. And they, I don't want no more of that. Like, I didn't know it was going to feel like that. That ain't for me. I got to get out of here. You know what I'm saying? Like, we need some people that get popped once and keep on going. Yeah, I mean, understand me. We, we, we got people who come up with great ideas and, and great, great things. And, and they start the job. But they never finish the job. Like, like they, they, oh, that's a good thing. We got marriages the same way. We start them, but we don't want to finish them. Child raising. We start it, but then they turn into little bratty teenagers and we don't want to finish it. Right? Relate all kinds of relationships. We don't want to finish it. We get a job. I've been here five years. Things aren't so great anymore. It's work, fool. <laughs> what you thought you was going to work for 40 years and smile every day? It's a punishment from Genesis. You weren't meant to enjoy every moment of it. Right? Think about it. And when you get tired of it, you just go back to law school. She'll read that one on the thing, right? I love you, baby. Right? Hey, go back to what we said at the beginning. Very beginning where we started this thing off with understanding what the battle was and if it was worth, if it was worth it, what the success was. Jesus warned them, Luke chapter 14, 28. For which of you intending to build a tower, sit down first and counts the cost. Whether you have sufficient to finish it, least happy after all, uh, laid the foundation and is not able to finish it. All that behold it began to mock him. Verse 30 saying, this man began to build and he wasn't able to finish. You got to sit down and understand. I'm going to tell you right now, it's, just, it's one of the things we talk about sometimes with, man, you don't try to get more baptized. You, no, I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to wait a cost before we put you in water. You're going to understand, right? It ain't, it ain't just about being dunked in the water and me getting to write the little tally up to the Scrabble Baptist Association like we got a point on the scoreboard or something. Huh? We're trying to do this for the kingdom of God. We want to make sure that you're going to last to the end. It don't do no good to put a point on the board if it gets erased later, right? Huh? 
We got to we got to be training people who are understanding the kingdom of God is for this eternity type thing. Too many people are starting something and yet they surrender. We need people who are willing to stay in the harvest field even when it becomes a battlefield. That's what this guy does. Now we we know why the enemy wants to destroy it, not only kill people but to kill the crops. Everything about that, the enemy wants to kill the crops. Why? Because if the enemy can kill the crop, you get hungry. You get hungry, you get desperate. When you get desperate, you struggle. When you struggle, you now have a decision on who you're going to lean on and where you're going to turn. See, the enemy's got a plan too. The question is, are we going to stand and we're going to fight for the things of God like these 37 men that are listed? Are we going to get our name written down? Because we knew how to stand for something in our time frame. Are we going to face the odds? Are we going to finish the mission? Are we going to focus on the enemy? Do we know our blessing? Or are we not going to be dedicated to this kind of stuff? Now, I'm not going to go into it and preach, but why they come up. I, I do have to read 13 through 17 for you guys. It says another three. So you think of our ladies in their little matching outfits. <laughs> Got to have three. Another three. Of the leading warriors went down at harvest time again. Man, that harvest time might have a little something behind it, huh? And came to David while he was in his cave still hiding from the enemy. While a company of the Philistines were camping in the valley. So notice they had to, they had to be kind of sneaky to get to, to get to David because the enemy's in the valley, but they wanted to get to the right people at the right time, right? Cause that's important. So they did it. In verse 14, David was on a stronghold and the Philistine garrison, they were, they were in Bethlehem where David, man, he really liked the water from Bethlehem. Right? Verse 15, he's extremely thirsty and here's what he says. If only someone would bring me a water from the well at the city gate of Bethlehem. You ever had like that, just that one drink that stays with you and you're like, man, if I just have that one drink again, right? That one flavor of Gatorade, that one glass of sweet tea from that one restaurant. You good and thirsty yet? I'm going to get you there, right? But it says this. All he, all he does is cry out a desire. So three of the warriors broke through the Philistine camp. What? You better get a hold of this picture. This dude done, these three done, they done snuck in. It's one thing to sneak in and get to like your destination. Like, yeah, we made it. Cool. High fives. And then you hear David say, man, if I could only ask some water. From that well that's over there where you guys just came from. Son of a gun. We got to go back over there again. But it says that these three snuck out there. They snuck through the Philistine and, and the waters of the camp. They broke through the camp. They drew water from the well. And they brought it back. So now they sneak it back across the enemy camp while holding their little cup of water. You know what I'm saying? I know somebody's going to tell me. You know they had wine skins back then that they probably put the water in. And had a li- Yes, I do know that. Okay. I've studied the Bible too. Right. So so, so they, they sneak it across the little cup because it's a cooler picture. I don't care about your wineskins. Right. So they got his little cup and he's sneaking around there. He's got his little thermos out. Right. He doesn't spill any. He gets back to David. They brought it back to David, but he refused to drink it. David's about to get slapped in the mouth. You know what I'm saying? Like about to get slapped in the mouth right here. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. Picture these three now. David, we done snuck to you. We done snuck back. We done snuck back again with the water. And now you're going to pour this thing on the ground in front of us? David, we three of the, back, the mighty warriors, like, we will kick your butt. Right? 
David said, Lord, I would never do such a thing. This is not the blood of men who risk their lives. So he refused to drink it. Such were the exploits of these three warriors. David's been a picture of Christ for us this entire thing. Believers, do you not hear Christ whispering some things he may desire? David wasn't even commanding it. He wasn't even making them do it. All he does is say, man, I'd like to have some water from that one well that I had that one time that was so good. And these three, they don't have to because it wasn't a command. It wasn't the right timing. He wasn't even technically king yet. Keep that in mind. But these three, they hear the desire of their king. And they do it. They do it so well that they get it back to him after doing everything that needed to be done. David acknowledges it and says, this water is not even worth a man to drink. This is the way we're going to start worshiping the true king. And we're going to pour it out in honor. You are not alone in the battle. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it feels like. I don't care what it sounds like. Surround yourself with men and women who are mighty men and women of God and are willing to go get you a cup of water and are willing to worship with you and are willing to to, to take on 800 or 300 or 600 that are willing to protect the beans. Right? Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much, God. We thank you for this story in your word. God, we thank you for these these three that we talked about. We thank you for the three more we, we ended with. We thank you for all 37, Lord God, that are listed. God, we thank you for the ones that even died before this chapter got written. But God, I pray now, more than just being thankful for them, that God, you put a call on your men and women in this building. God, you put a call on the men and women sitting at their homes on the internet right now or later this week when they catch up with this sermon. God, you put a call so great that we don't have a choice but to stand and fight. God, let us know your desire and make us courageous enough, Lord God, to stand for you and fulfill it. In your great name we pray. Amen.